Commercial diving is a dangerous job, especially when you're working on a drill rig. This episode shares the details of two tragic accidents that took place on similar drill rigs in the 1970s. A little after midnight on October 14, 1974, Comex divers John Clark and Christopher Brody were lowered by crane in a basket to the waterline from the drill rig Wega Drill One. A crucial link in one of the drill rig's massive anchor chains had broken. The dive plan was to repair it by having John Clark remain on the surface of the water, with Christopher Brody swimming down about 40 feet to attach a winch wire to the end of the chain section dangling from the anchor. Once Christopher made the connection, John would relay that information to a man standing on a nearby catwalk. The man would then radio instructions to the winch operator on the rig to begin hoisting the end of the chain out of the water for the repair. Both John and Christopher were dressed in wetsuits. They both jumped from the dive basket into the water. Each man was equipped with twin scuba bottles, regulator, face mask, life vest, weight belt, and fins. However, they had no lifeline and no communications. There was no third diver acting as a standby in case of an emergency. The two divers were on their own. In the water, John and Christopher swam the 25 yards to column one, where anchor number seven was resting half out of the water on a large metal frame called an anchor bolster. Leaving John on the surface, Christopher submerged and began swimming down the anchor chain. Sea conditions were reportedly calm that day, although swells were only two to four feet high. The water was powerful enough to throw John against the anchor bolster, fracturing five of his ribs. Meanwhile, forty feet below, Christopher discovered that the winch wire had come up ten feet short of its destination. He needed to ask topside to lower the wire, but with no way to communicate this information. He had no choice but to swim up to the surface. There, he found John in distress, with his regulator out of his mouth, and struggling to climb the bolster to get out of the water. Christopher quickly swam over to John, ditched his weight belt, inflated his life vest, and put his regulator back into his mouth. For a short time, Christopher even tried to help John climb the bolster, but the air tanks on John's back weighed more than 80 pounds, and John himself was only five feet eight and a half inches tall, and weighed only 132 pounds. When the regulator dropped out of John's mouth for a second time, Christopher put it back in. At this point, the diving supervisor appeared on the catwalk and shouted to Christopher to swim John over to the basket. The situation had become so critical that one of the rig's crew, a man by the name of Nordhagen, dove into the freezing water to lend Christopher assistance. On the way to the basket, John fell into unconsciousness, and for a third time, Christopher put John's regulator back into his mouth. By the time John was recovered onto the deck of the rig, he had died from drowning. Story number two: The Wega Drill Two diving accident occurred in the North Sea off Scotland. 
On September 9, 1975, divers Peter Holmes, age 29, and Roger Baldwin, age 24, had just completed a short dive to 390 feet to clear a tangle of rope that had wrapped itself around the guideposts of the blowout preventer. A blowout preventer is a specialized valve or similar mechanical device used to seal, control, and monitor oil and gas wells to prevent blowouts. Blowouts are the uncontrolled release of crude oil or natural gas from a well. Peter and Roger were able to dive to such depths with the help of a diving bell, which is a rigid chamber used to transport divers from the surface to depth and back in open water. The dive had gone well, and now the plan was to decompress the men inside the diving bell to 310 feet, then transfer them into a chamber complex on the boat and hold them in saturation. This means their blood would remain saturated with the same amount of nitrogen that accumulates when diving 310 feet deep. As with all deep dive systems, each chamber on the supervisor's control panel was represented by a series of valves and gauges. With this particular system, by turning several valves on the console, any one depth gauge could be made to monitor the depth of a chamber other than for which it was normally intended. On Chamber 1's panel, there was a 1,000-foot gauge considered to be the most accurate. Because of the cross-referencing capabilities of the system, it became the practice of the shift supervisor to set the valves of this gauge to read the internal depth of the diving bell prior to the divers leaving bottom, then track their ascent through the lock-on and transfer procedure. The rationale behind using this particular gauge throughout the whole operation was to avoid any potential decompression problems that might arise from using two separate gauges with a discrepancy problem. Once the divers had safely passed from the diving bell to the entrance lock to chamber one, the supervisor was then supposed to turn the valves back to their original positions in order to monitor the depth of the divers. At 9.50 p.m., the crew connected the diving bell to the entrance lock of the chamber complex as planned, but during the lock-on procedure, a gas leak developed between the mating flanges. The bell was removed, the flange surfaces were cleaned, and on the second attempt, the bell was successfully sealed to the system. After Peter and Roger equalized the bell with the rest of the complex, they opened the inside door and were in the process of transferring into the entrance lock when the gas leak suddenly returned. An attempt was made to isolate the divers from the leak by sealing the door of the entrance lock that led to the bell, but according to the dive log, this effort was abandoned. To protect Peter and Roger from further pressure loss, the supervisor ordered them to climb into chamber 1. There they leaned against the inside hatch while the supervisor injected a small amount of helium inside the chamber to seal the door. At this point, the supervisor forgot to reset the valves to reconnect the gauge with chamber 1. Because chamber 1 was not equipped with a dedicated depth gauge, Peter and Roger were now in a part of the system not being monitored by any gauge. 
Meanwhile, the gauge was still recording a pressure drop, which the supervisor erroneously believed was reading chamber one. He thought that he had failed to achieve a seal on chamber one's hatch, and so he began to feed large quantities of pure helium into the chamber where the two divers were stationed. By the time the supervisor realized his error, Peter and Roger had been pressurized from 310 feet to 650 feet over the course of several minutes. The rapid compression combined with the high thermal transfer property of helium, plus the high humidity factor of the area, caused the temperature to rise from an estimated 90 degrees Fahrenheit to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. The two divers began pulling desperately on the chamber hatch to escape, but were unable to open the door. They took the mattresses off their bunks and laid on the somewhat cooler aluminum surfaces, but they were still forced to breathe in an intolerable environment. Peter and Roger died several hours later of overheating. It was later pointed out by the judge at the fatal accident inquiry that the way in which the diving system was designed and labeled carried a high risk of human error, particularly during the distractions of an emergency. A safety officer testified that the manner in which the control panel was designed was a contributory cause of the accident, and that it probably would not have happened had the panel for Chamber 1 been equipped with a dedicated depth gauge permanently fixed for the purpose of reading only that chamber. Had there been such a gauge, then the supervisor would not have been misled by the gauge, and therefore would not have had any reason to inject the chamber with massive amounts of helium.